0: Hi, I'm Ben, your host for the next hour, and you're listening to a Virgin Startup podcast produced with the support of our friends at Virgin Money. The podcasts are recordings of our free meetups, which take place every month. Check out virginstartup.org forward slash events to sign up to the next one. On this week's episode, our discussion is about building food and drink businesses that thrive. Joining me on the panel was Ben Branson, founder of Seedlip Drinks, Vivian Wong, co-founder of Viral Sensation Little Moons, and Neil Potts, who set up the Virga company with his wife. This chat is full of tasty nuggets if you're looking to launch a food and drink brand, and will leave you thirsty to get your startup off the ground. Enjoy, and see you next time. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Virgin Startup Midsummer Meetup. Now, if you are in England tonight, you're experiencing something that doesn't happen very often, which is what we call now extreme heat. Uh, This is basically, it feels like an endless summer right now. We've had at least five days in a row of blazing sunshine, so much so that some of us have come inside to shelter from it, especially those of us with uh, fair complexions like me myself. So um, thank you for being here if you're in sunny England, sheltering from the heat. Um, But also thank you for joining us from all over the world. I can already see that we have a fantastic global crowd in tonight and you're all connecting on the chat. So this event chat, you know what you're doing. It's there. It's open. You can just say hello to each other. This is going to be open all through the session tonight, and mention where you are. So we've got like um, Near from Virgin Money in Cardiff. Hey, Near. Uh, Ciao, Berli, Anna. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume Italy, but could be anywhere, of course. Uh, Hope is in New Zealand. Hope Forest. I'm. I don't know if that's a brand or if that's your name. You are a brand with that name. You love black sheep. It says I think in your profile uh, avatar. So, good morning from New Zealand. Kiora, And we've got uh, Melissa from the US, um, Victoria. Uh, Victoria um, is the founder of Alpaca Coffee. I think we've connected before at a Virgin Startup meet. Alpaca Coffee. We are talking food and drink startups tonight. You're in the right place. DJ from LA. DJ from LA. Uh, And so on. We've got Roger from TNT, Trinidad and Tobago, Port of Spain. I once went to Carnival in Port of Spain. That is a a night of startup celebration. You know when you're get you at a good party because it starts at midnight and it goes on until like six in the morning and even the police are joining the party. Uh, So it's like Notting Hill Carnival on steroids and in the heat. Welcome, Roger. Um, We're going to do a bit of liming action tonight here at Virgin Startup. So what have we got planned for you tonight? Tonight we are talking about how to build and scale a food and drink startup. Now, if you are in the UK like I am, you will be aware that – it seems that every day there's a new exciting food and drink brand bursting onto the scene through our Instagrams and street markets and onto the uh onto the bigger shopping uh storefronts. And the choice and variety of quality, mission-driven, beautifully creative brands now compared to like even 10, 10 years ago is fantastic. And I've been lucky to be part some of those journeys early on and uh, representing a couple tonight before I introduce our all-star panel. One is a uh, dash water, perfect for this time of year. So dash water is set up by two guys who wanted to help tackle the food waste problem and make a beautiful summer sparkling drink without any sugar. So it's wonky fruits infused with, uh, in fizzy water and it's delicious. And then the other shout out I wanted to give on the cold drinks front with toast ale. Uh, so this is made out of leftover bread. Um, and leftover bread that you uh, then turn into delicious beers, craft beers so at Ale. So those are my two uh, little drinks recommendations. Uh, the third one um, I wanted to shout out, mainly from a story point of view, um, is a drinks brand similar to Dash. It's a fizzy water brand, uh, but it's called Ugly Drinks. And I worked with, alongside the co-founder of Ugly, Hugh Thomas, a few years ago at the Escape School in London. And I remember Hugh coming in and he was he was working with me on leading this accelerator and Hugh said, so, you know, we've launched this brand of uh, called ugly drinks, zero sugar. It's going really well. We've got it out everywhere. Well, we just found out this weekend that we've had to pull all 10,000 bottles off the shelf because the pH levels in all the drinks has just gone off overnight. And I was like, whoa, how much work? Where are you at? And he's like, well, it's been three years work. It's been friends and family's money. It's been a lot of sweat. It's been this, this, and this. And we've all just had to like take it all off the shelf because something in the mix went wrong and they had to, that's it done. So I spoke to him about a week later about that. I said, so what are you, what are you going to do? Um, is he moving on to something else? You're going back to work in your old job. And he's like, well, because I've got a co-founder Joe and because we're really passionate about this we're gonna try and make it happen. We're gonna try and go back to drawing board and start again. And they've done it, and like four or five years later, Ugly Drinks, especially in the States, is doing really, really well. The brand is very creative, like the ones we're gonna meet tonight. And uh, it's doing an amazing job. Anyway, so that's the story of a startup I've been connected with. Um, But I would love to introduce in a moment, Hold, hold your horses, uh, our, three, our three founding brands of food and drink startups we're going to get to know tonight. But beforehand, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Virgin Money who make this possible, basically. Um, we're able to make this meetup free to attend, um, giving lots of advice and support and inspiration to, to people like you. Um, And if you don't know about Virgin Money, they're basically, they exist to disrupt the status quo. They want everyone to have a much happier relationship with money. And who can argue with that? Through their brilliant colleagues, inspiring spaces and digital solutions, they are doing everything they can to offer a life more Virgin. So if you are looking for support in that world, Go and check out Virgin Money. So onto our stars tonight. I'm very excited to uh, invite and welcome Neil Potts of the Virga Company, Vivian Wong of Little Moons and Ben Branson, not related, Sir Richard, of Seedlit onto the Virgin Startup stage. Neil is here, welcome Neil. That's the sound Hi. of 200, 200 Virgin Startup founders cheering with three of you. Hey Vivian, hey Ben, welcome
1: welcome hello hello
0: hello lovely to to see you all in in the room tonight in the heat you see if we were doing this in a venue tonight we wouldn't it would be tough to get 200 people in the room so this works really well even though we can't all see each other um so as you can see in the chat we've got a lot of people from all over the world uh tuning in who are just excited to connect and learn from you and each other and quite a lot of food and drink founders as well. So um, we're assuming from where we're sitting that people are here from uh, all ways, from curiosity through to idea, through to their, you know, might be up and running for a few years with their idea and their project. And so we can learn about all the stages, but where I wanted to start and for the next 45 minutes or so before we then go into breakout rooms and everyone can meet each other and share their ideas is really get to know the three of you and where it all began and, and go back a little bit um, to start with, um, and so we'll we'll share those stories shortly. Just really quickly up front, what's what's keeping? What's your favourite latest food and drink brand that you're into that isn't your own that you're enjoying this summer, Vivian?
2: I really like this brand. You know the alternative meat.
0: Okay, tell us more.
2: Because I think it's really hard to do. Well, oh sorry, it's another one of your. You know, it's some of your burgers. But I, I tried it. Someone asked me to try it at a, at a dinner party, and I and I thought it was a really good copy of um, of meat, and so. Um, i really like that
0: brand and it's amazing okay, as we'll, as we'll learn from neil tonight how many of these things have, have just popped up, up. Yeah, seemingly popped true. up there's been a lot of sweat sweat I mean, no, no no meat blood and tears behind them neil what like about some, you you're not going to tell us about a favorite meatless company are you uh, i could do
3: um no mine is proper chips i've developed a rather well, i think it's a healthy addiction um proper chips salt and vinegar i think it's a new flavor it's ridiculous just like the best crisp slash snack i've ever i've ever tried i think it's and is it
0: is it the product that's winning you or does the branding help like why, uh, why the love yeah the brand's great um
3: we've also used their popcorn uh in our shakes before but but yeah just came across this new flavor i've had the barbecue ones before they're a lentil chip it's just like it's like an amazing product very crispy very moorish uh, very and crispy yeah, the branding's good too. <laughs> why yeah. do you love it it's
0: very crispy and they're like that's what make them happy <laughs> nice one. Um, and Ben, you've been in this game for a while. So like you've seen some, so many come and go. What, what's your favourite at the moment?
1: I, um, I don't eat fish, but uh, having come across the guys from Pesky Fish, uh, have a look at them. They are disrupting a centuries-old industry with a really modern, considered contemporary approach to how we eat. Source and eat fish. Uh, so yeah, have a look at them. They just raise a load of money. And uh, is it is it their mission? Like you talked about disrupting the industry. Is that's why you're a fan? It's it's a bit of everything actually. Yeah. It's kind of using tech in a really positive way. Uh it meets a need, a modern need that that we have uh as a society, uh and it's trying to do a bit better for the planet. Um and yeah, young founders, very driven, incredibly ambitious uh yeah so the, whole, the whole package Right name pack.
0: too um so vivian let's start with your story so that when where let's take take us back to when little moons was a twinkle in your eye like where did the idea bubble up what were you doing at the time and how did you go from kind of idea to first version
2: i'd um i I'd, I'd thought about starting my own business for, for a really long time i think back in maybe 2014 and i uh, sorry 2004 and i didn't actually start little moons until 2010 but I was working my corporate job and I just saw that sushi was taking off back in, you know, 2008 time. Everyone in the city was like carrying around a nitsu bag and, yo know, sushi mm. was going nuts. And I thought, you know, there's no good desserts out there for Japanese restaurants. So my parents have a bakery that makes traditional mochi and they fill it with red bean. And I just, I tried the ice cream version with my brother when we'd been to America and Japan. And we just thought, look, this this dessert is amazing. It's absolutely insane. I think it'd do really well over here, particularly as Japanese food is, is taking off. So we sort of, Um, just started having that idea really. And I think it starts with the idea and then you start formulating a plan as to how you're going to do it because the texture is so unusual. Anyone who's tried mochi, it's it's sort of like a soft, sweet dough. Mm. Um, And I guess the story was, we didn't think the market was ready for it. So we didn't sell it directly to the grocery stores, the supermarkets, because we didn't think anyone would take it off the shelves. So we started selling it to restaurants first. So I approached a lot of high-end Mayfair Japanese restaurants and they decided to put on menu mainly because a lot of them made them themselves. But then it's a really difficult product to handle, and I think we just made it really easy for them to serve because it came ready made, and um, and the quality was was good enough for them to serve it as their own product. And so that's where we started it with, with in the restaurants first.
0: And just to, um, just at that, that moment, because if you I, already there's a lot a lot in that in terms of work and planning at that point. So were you making it in your own kitchen? Were you sourcing it from another supplier? how did you did you just go and knock on doors of restaurants how did it happen
2: so we manufactured it in my parents factory to begin with it was a we had a small area because they already made the traditional mochi but we had to okay. buy little bits of kit to sort of like change it for ice cream and change the recipe because ice cream is very different to red bean and it all has to go together it's quite technical so i won't bore you with that but there was a lot of work behind that sort of product development yeah. Um, so we were we we spent I think two years perfecting that.
0: Two years just before, even before you pitched the restaurant.
2: Yeah, wow. we had to have perfect. We had to have a perfect product before we pitched it to the market. Um, so yeah, before we even start launched the business, we spent two years in the background sort of perfecting the product. And then um, I literally just went knocking on doors. I would go and cold call um, chefs. I'd go like um, Nobu and I'd say, hi, can I speak to the head pastry chef? And he'd come out and then, you know, sort of built a, a rapport. But you also meet them at trade shows. So like the restaurant show, I met a lot of um, chefs there. Um, and then as chefs move around different kitchens, they sort of spread the news. So it was, um, it was quite slow, but it was quite rewarding. And it was nice that we grew quite slowly. So we learned how to scale up in a sort of controlled way, learn how our system should be, accounting, everything like that. So we're quite lucky that we wasn't super fast growth at the beginning because we, we were a little bit clueless.
0: That's Well, every, everybody is right at that stage, but the two year process to get to that even first sale it is a long time. So how did you stay like motivated and focused during that time? And we as who, who was, who was the other, who else was involved at this point? My
2: brother. So my brother and I co-founded Little Means Together. Um, Look, it was it was hard. we both moved in together. I've mentioned this before, like to save money um we, we We lived in separate apartments before, but um and that's tough. You're working all day together, you go home, you're living in the same space, small flat on top of each other. you never get a chance to switch off so it was it was really tough times, but I think when you're doing something that you have a purpose and a vision and it's it's your thing, it's not because someone's making you work till midnight you you want to do it, and you're super passionate about it. It doesn't seem like work so you know we've had some tough times but I think someone once asked me to have I ever thought about giving up and absolutely not we've had some super tough times but I've never thought about giving up
0: and and final question on this sort of early stage uh Vivian of Little Moons funding was it was it say brother yours and your brother's savings did you bootstrap it were you working full-time whilst you were doing this in the evenings
2: so we bootstrapped it. We saved some money whilst we were working. Um, our parents helped us out with a little bit of money as well. And we just grew it really, really slowly. And I think it's we're quite unusual because I have been doing it for over 10 years now, but we don't have any outside investment. We've done it a really slow, steady way.
0: Fantastic. And sometimes everyone's in such a rush, but I think one of the things, there you go. <laughs> Ben's applauding along with lots of others. Over 200 people with us now, which is fantastic. Uh, so many more questions for you, Vivian, but we'll come to Neil now uh, and the Virga company. Tell us about your your birth story of that business. Uh, yeah, so it it all happened um, quite organically, really. So before
3: we did the Virga Co, and we, in this instance, is myself and my partner, Rachel. Um, and Rachel's my partner in life and business, so I completely understand Vivian's um what, what Vivian said about you know living in the same space as the person you're co-founding a business with it's challenging it can be. Um, which, <laughs> so which, we,
0: what, 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 which was first Neil sorry to be nosy. Or the the relationship you heard okay. before um, yeah long long time. But Sometimes we, um, occasionally it happens the other way around though. probably more stable yeah. the way you did it.
3: Yeah no it's good it's fun it's um I wouldn't change it but it, it does get stressful for sure Um you can't switch off very easily but but no, we, um, we were doing very different things before. So Rachel and I have always been crazy about food, um, always had that you know, thing where you go into a restaurant and you're like, oh, we could do this. You know, it's, it's easy, right? We, we, could, we could do this. We've got great ideas. Um, and, and wouldn't it be nice one day to do this? So we've always had that like buzzing around in our brains, but we've never really acted on it. Um, a long, long time ago, I ran a cleaning business. I started a cleaning business. Um, this was probably about 10 years ago. And um, that went well for a little while. I was working as a property manager for a few London agents before that, on coming to London just after uni. Um, so I got to know cleaning companies, and then I got into cleaning. And then I did that for about 18 months. And it was good for a while, but you know, challenging. And then I kind of realized actually, this isn't something I'm passionate about. And again, uh, touching on what Vivian was just saying, you've you've got to be, you know, if you're going to run a business, which is going to take a lot of time, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of pain, a lot of sacrifice, you've really got to love what you're doing and you've got to understand why you're doing it. Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. So that didn't last. Um, I then went into banking. Um, <laughs> so which wasn't a terrible decision. I, I, I'm actually, my skills and my kind of interests and my brain actually lend themselves fairly well to what I was doing. But um, I just started getting to the point where, you know, I'd done it for, I think, about five years at the time. And I just got to the point where I was getting home every day and just thinking, like, what, what am I doing? You know, what am I actually, like, what, what impact am I having here? I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly dissatisfied with my job, but equally it doesn't, you know, thinking about doing this for the next 30 years just killed me. Um, so yeah Rachel and I kind of were coming to the same conclusion at the same time she was actually a luxury fashion buyer um, which she adored that was like her, her dream career she worked since uni to get there um, and, and kind of climbed the ladder that way she worked for a bunch of different people a couple of high street people she worked for Harrods um, she then went over well we went over to Dubai uh, we lived over there for a little while while she she did the job over there and then we came back and um yeah, we just kind of got to this point at the same time where we were both just having that same niggle where we were just feeling like, OK, this something just isn't clicking here for us. We turned 30. Um, we, we went on this big trip to California um, to celebrate primarily. And I should say at this point, I was I was literally the world's biggest meat eater. Um, I, I would be amazed if there was a bigger meat eater than I was at the time. So, um, I definitely wasn't going into this holiday with like a plan to, um, you know, a plan to turn vegan or anything like that in parallel, uh, for about 10 years, I'd been suffering with major, major stomach problems. Um, and it wasn't any of the normal stuff that, uh, you know, you get kind of diagnosed with and any of the common things that that people are aware of. Um, it just, I went to about six different doctors. I had all sorts of tests. I had a camera shoved down my throat, which for anyone who's had that will know it's really unpleasant. Mm. Um, and yeah, it just, it just we just never got anywhere with it. We never got to a diagnosis. No doctor could quite figure out what was going on. Um, so I just decided, you know, after being uh, diagnosed with nothing and given acid tablets to basically take indefinitely, um, I decided, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, so when we were on this holiday in California, just to bring it back to the the actual direction of travel, we um, we just accidentally started eating more and more vegan food. Um, we found ourselves in great restaurants, which this was back in early 2016. Um, it was just a lot more advanced uh, than London was at the time. You know, restaurants you could go and they weren't saying, hey, I'm a vegan restaurant, you know, uh, welcome vegans. It was just like, I'm an awesome restaurant. There's 200 people in here. and." Guess what? Everything's vegan. Um, So I just accidentally started eating more and more that way. Rachel had kind of always had a tendency to be vegetarian, vegan anyway. Um, And yeah, just we got to the end of the holiday. I barely touched meat and we were just like, wow, there's a huge opportunity here to do something like this. Give our own spin on it, but do it in London, which at the time, hard to believe now, of course, but at the time was pretty uh, early stage in terms of great vegan restaurants. There were a few, but...
0: Um it's, yeah, it's a great a story, early. Neil, and I love the way how the you know the vegan cults tricked you into eating their food. Yeah. <laughs> they did.
3: They know? did. They you know, like... Becoming vegan. Can you believe that? <laughs> Unbelievable. And it's yeah. all okay.
0: And how's your health been since since you personally shifted?
3: Superb. I mean I, I'm I'm overweight now since the last eighteen months because I've eaten way too much junk and I've been too stressed. But um aside from you know those kind of normal day to day things, um my health in terms of my stomach has been perfect. Um, I'm really not. I'm quite cynical. I'm, I'm, I'm really not one of those miracle cure type people. Um, but I, I mean, it, I can only put it down to what I must have been eating um, and what I'm now not eating. And I think on reflection, probably red meat and dairy for me and for a lot of people um, was probably the problem.
0: Right. So it's really interesting. I'm surprised I didn't see you on that Netflix documentary about athletes who've gone vegan, you know. And uh Yeah, sadly not an athlete. That's that's not on my C V, unfortunately. <laughs> that's the next part of the career. There's so many different parts Final question one for day. you, Neil, before we go to, to Ben, is sure. is on like the first version of your product. So how did you go from mm. like you you had this uh like Vivian, this wanna bring in an idea from another part of the world and yeah. innovate on it? So what how did you get version one out? So I think the thing for us was the concept as opposed to uh, the product
3: itself. So we always knew the product would iterate. Rachel and I weren't chefs, but we were pretty good home cooks, Uh, you know, always have been. But we we knew the product wouldn't be the last product. So for us, it was about the concept. Um, The concept at the time didn't really exist in London, which was just a great burger restaurant, something really casual and accessible that people could come to and enjoy, bring their friends who aren't vegan. Um, And hey, guess what? It just happens to be vegan. So for us, that was like the thing we really focused on from the start. The the product itself, um, we made a bunch of recipes ourselves at home. Um, We would work Monday to Friday. We would make all the products at home on a Saturday. And then we used to do Sunday markets around London. So Tottenham, Shoreditch, um, we did a bunch of different ones, different events and things like that. So yeah for us the product looking back now if you tried it now it probably wouldn't be that exciting but at the time um you know it was good it was decent and it was decent enough to get the ball rolling and for us to to start learning
0: from customers fantastic and you can answer this question later but i want to talk about vegan cheese and why why there is a solution there because that's that's been the biggest barrier for me and and i know many people is the dairy side of the experience which is uh Mm -hmm. but now there are so many great solutions all right ben seed lip now i feel like the Seedlip story from my perspective was one of those things where, oh my God, they've invented something five years too early here uh, because it just stood out a mile, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it was like, is the world ready or is the UK ready to to invest, you know, decent money into a bottle of something that doesn't have booze or alcohol in it? So t- tell us your version of the journey. Where did the idea of Seedlip
1: begin? I mean, I, I, firstly, Ben, I think if I'd properly listened and taken on board all of the people that thought that seed lip was the most ridiculous idea ever and would never sell a bottle and there was no point. Um, yeah. I'm really glad I didn't kind of listen to that too much. Uh, but I, I i have not said this before. It feels like a really cheesy thing to say, but I literally feel like I was born to do Seedlip mm. and Partly because my mother's side of my family, you know, have been farming for 320 years in the north of England, still farming today. I live on a farm now, you know, nature, I absolutely adore. Um, and then my dad is in the world of brand design. Um, so sort of aged eight, nine years old, I was sort of like, hey, I want to sit in tractors and I want to learn about grain and I want to be out in the fields but also I'm kind of intrigued by what dad's up to and learning about these things called consumers and brands and the impact that design can have. And, you know, then the third piece was, you know, I I left school and I learned to be a chef. So I I sort of feel like from a, from a flavor nature and a kind of design and innovation perspective, Steedlit was just sort of waiting to happen. Um, I was running my own design business. I definitely didn't want to sit on the tractors anymore. In the school holidays, I was more intrigued by the kind of world of design. So I I spent my career helping other founders and bigger brands uh, bring their brands to life in kind of relevant and meaningful ways uh, to the public. Um, and was definitely not, was quite happy doing that and busy and had my own agency, not looking for anything else. Um, But what I was doing and getting really stuck into was growing stuff at home, herbs, veg. um, And, you know, I'm sure many of you will know that you walk into a supermarket and the fresh herb variety on offer is pretty slim. You know, there's seven or eight pots. You buy a basil plant, great intentions, it dies three days later. Um, Anyway, I was like, what other herbs can we grow? What else have we lost, forgotten? I learned that there are 47,000 edible plants and that was kind of like, wow, you know, that's that's pretty incredible. Um, So I started growing a few different lots of different things and found my way through Wikipedia links and the Internet uh, to a scanned copy of a book called The Art of Distillation. Hmm. Uh, If you Google The Art of Distillation PDF, you'll find what I found. And there's 200 ingredients mentioned in there, but it's a recipe book for herbal remedies using distillation. Uh, as a method of extraction and some were alcoholic and some were non-alcoholic and i just you know i like arts and crafts i like working with my hands it wasn't actually that unusual for me to get on the internet and buy a little two and a half liter copper still and start playing around in my kitchen trying to copy some of these uh recipes that was it evenings weekends happy opened this sort of Pandora's box of 500 years of botanical history. Fascinating. I love nature. I love history. I like ingredients and flavor and I like process and gadgets and, uh, you know, engineering kind of making things. So it sounds it sounds been so much of an indulgence of your curiosities
0: and in, in, in life or all, all in that, all in that sort of exploration. When did it tip into like, Oh,
1: business career opportunity when and I'm sorry I'm going to swear here but when when I got served a really fucking disgusting fruity sweet pink childish mocktail in a nice restaurant that shall not be named in London oh come on <laughs> cannot be named <laughs> um, and I just it wasn't it definitely wasn't a lightning bolt moment but it was definitely a uh I feel like an idiot uh this doesn't go with the food I don't really want to finish this um and i just left thinking you know this is 2013 and i just left thinking how hard can it be you know how hard can it be to get a decent non-alcoholic i don't care why you're not drinking alcohol you should be able to get decent options um and i thought do you know what maybe there's something in what i'm doing at home maybe there's something in the family farm my dad's experience my own experience and maybe someone else also feels really pissed off. And if if there's one other person, then my idea of kind of creating something in six months in, uh, and launching five products at a farmer's market, which was my original plan, um, yeah, seemed to be a, a doable kind of thing. Two years later, uh, there was one product in one size uh, launching in, in Selfridges in London. Um, and yeah, that was November the 4th, 2015. Um, uh, date is imprinted on your soul
0: and sorry, and so. uh and so like Vivian, and, and in some ways like neil as well that there was a long period of uh, product development in, in you know playing with these botanicals in a full education process how did you stay motivated at that point to to go for
1: it because obviously the passion is there but the business case must have been like lots of doubts around it i you know I- i um i signed up to loads of these crowdfunding sites. i'll probably get myself in trouble now but i i signed myself up to lots of these crowdfunding sites to get people's business plans to have a look at what the hell is a business plan and i bought business for dummies you know literally (laughs) i've got the book and i thought maybe i need a co-founder maybe i need someone else to help i met a few people that wasn't really kind of sticking uh but i learned i learned you know i fell in love with excel Knowing your numbers is really fucking important, regardless of whether you are an accountant or not. You must know your numbers um, because it will help you make the best decisions. In my in my kind of experience, I've made my best decisions by being able to read numbers and tell a story and then make decisions. Um, so it was, I you know, listening to you, Vivian, saying that, guy, you just wanted to keep going. I fucking hated it. I I wanted to. Especially when we launched and it all kind of started going nuts. I I wanted to pack it in every week. I I was completely overwhelmed.
0: And it uh, going nuts in terms of there was a lot of buzz, there was demand straight away. So, so yeah, the, the immediate it was, success felt overwhelming.
1: Well I I you know, I had my lovely sales forecast and I I made a thousand bottles, and those thousand bottles were gonna sell out in five months, and that was gonna be nice, and we're gonna do a bit of PR, we're gonna do a few events. I learned how to bartend at home so I could make some drinks for people. Uh, and, you know, the thousand bottles sold out in three weeks. And we heard from 100 countries in the first three months. And suddenly I'm walking into Buckingham Palace, you know, four months after we launch. Um, and it, it, it kind of completely blew my plans and expectations away in a, in a good way in the sense that, wow, we, you know, maybe there's something here. But also in a I don't know how to deal with this. I I wasn't prepared for this. I just wanted to quietly tiptoe out there. And the market is shouting back some nice things and some unnice things, as you can imagine. Um, which is piss being a real highlight of uh a review that we got early on of uh someone's <laughs> comments of what it tasted like. But it's one that I hold on to, you know. Um but yeah, I I had I wasn't very prepared and, you know, the first three batches I made and then I hired a a a white transit van and drove six and a half hours up to a bottler in Lancashire uh, and rented a bottling line and put 7,000 bottles down that line and put them all in the back of the lorry, drove them back down south and then had labelling parties of people, you know, pulling favours to come in and and label bottles. Which, if you've You've seen seen our bottles, they've got very big labels and not a lot of room for error in terms of crease. Yeah, it, it, guys, it's it's slightly painful to think back on these days.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you for going back into the pain for us, Ben. But I, I, I can hear in the in your storytelling that tension between what is a quite source specific, persistent like precise kind of artist and scientific approach to to life and work with the chaos of a startup, right? And then that's where these two things, but thankfully you went for it just like Neil and Vivian did too. And here we are today and, and everyone's admiring and applauding Uh, what you've built the three of you so I want to move thank you so much for sharing those stories there's so much value in that and I'm sure everyone has really enjoyed listening Um, I want to dive into some of the the core food and drink sort of elements now so product development storytelling and branding and then some some thoughts around mission and sustainability Um, so on product development you've all shared about how you did your first versions one of the questions that often comes up is like uh, what should I go, you know, how, how much should I perfect this? How should I go? Should I just go to markets and iterate? Should I go straight to Selfridges or a Whole Foods or whoever it is? Like, how did you guys figure that out beyond going to Selfridges and like the restaurants initially? Like, what was your strategy? Cause it's a very different path, isn't it? Going to buyers versus trying to sell door to door. Neil, what did you, uh, was it buying a restaurant space? What, how did you go, like, figure out what you were going to do? Yeah, it's a good question. We
3: um we were supposed lucky in a way that we did markets and festivals and pop ups okay. and things like that for about a year before we no more than that, maybe eighteen months before we opened it. So you had your own van and you just drove around and Yeah, not even that. We would turn up with our like gazebo and okay. uh, put it on a market stall and, and, and kind of learn that way, you know. And and I think it it doesn't feel like the thing you want to do at the time. Like if you'd asked me at the time, there's no way I wanted to be standing there doing that. But at the same time, we learned so much, the product improved so much. Um, we then caught the attention of some decent kind of chefs who worked with us along the way. Um, it enabled us to build the following, you know, which really helped us when we came to things like crowdfunding and opening the first restaurant. Um, so I think there's, it's easy to kind of look back and make sense of everything. But at the time, yeah, you, you kind of just have to in our in our example you kind of have to just get out there and 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 get something rolling you know we we were pretty confident with the product we made first i i kind of alluded to it being a bit of a work in progress it was decent you know i'm not so was it was the out. product
0: just one burger or was it a number of i think, menu? no i
3: think we made about three or four okay. um and we would make like different quantities of each and then we would make something completely different the next week and then you kind of gradually learn what sticks but also then you've got this other thing happening, which is the way the market is moving outside of what you're doing. So we started off with totally, totally veg based patties in our minds. It was like, Oh, why doesn't, why isn't this a big thing? You know, why isn't, why isn't anybody doing this in a restaurant? Mm. It, it works. There's a market for it. And we still, we still have those patties now like different versions of, of different vegetables and different ways we can put plants together. Um, there is also now a major major trend which is um, people going into more kind of meat substitute type products so that's also something that we had to sort of pivot a little bit and, and kind of welcome those burgers into the fold as well and those products into the fold um, but yeah you just have to kind of for us anyway we had to learn as we got as we went along and improve things as we went along
0: but there's such a big um, difference here that you, you make the point of between people working on like uh, fairly lean tech startup ideas or even service mm. other service related ideas. Mm. Um, when you want to like test a new product or service, you can build a first version and get it out to your, uh, you know, AB list it, whatever, quite quickly and have the data and the feedback back quite quickly. You know, the whole Tim Ferriss approach to marketing, but in food and drink, that's, you can do a little bit of the market, right? With testing, yeah. but, but when you're developing a whole product line, that, like bringing in a meatless burger, that's a big decision. So do you just go, is it all instinct or are you all like data-driven? A uh, bit of both, I think. Okay. And I think there's a big difference as
3: well, I should say. Like we were going at the time only into restaurants. We At the time, we didn't have products uh, that we sold in supermarkets. So I think there's a big difference between getting a restaurant product out there, iterating it on a market store and then launching your restaurant. And you can still make mistakes in the restaurant. You can still get a dish wrong. You can still, we still do. You can still get a special wrong. It doesn't sell. You try something else next month. So there's a bit more forgiveness in that side of our business. Whereas if uh, we put out a product in a supermarket that is terrible, uh, which thankfully we've not yet done (laughs) Uh, touching wood here in case you can't see. then I think that's much that's a much less forgiving world, and I think Ben and Vivian will probably be able to kind of speak a little bit more to that. Whereas I think you can't make those mistakes when it comes to supermarket buyers. They just they're just pretty. I mean, they're great to work with. They're very supported, but you get stuff wrong, and you don't really get a. You're lucky if you get a second chance.
0: Yeah, it's a high risk um, reward game, isn't it? And Vivian, yeah. uh, just coming over to you, like product journey of Little Moons, which is such a technically, I can imagine, difficult thing to to iterate on quickly or is it not
2: no no, it it was difficult and i think the texture is particularly challenging and it's funny hearing ben saying how people described his drink as was it witch's juice or something because i've heard we we did some consumer testing and people described mochi as eating a slug or eating an eyeball which is just delightful sounds yummy um but ben and i think we also use the same branding agency too yeah, for our brands, but um, so our, for our product, I mean, I guess our journey was like like you said, you Neil. Know, we we tested it in the restaurants. We, I wasn't sure which flavors to develop, but I thought, you know, because we were going to Asian restaurants, I developed my Asian flavors first. And I'm actually quite proud that I have, I don't have a degree in product development or anything, but the recipes of coconut mango and a few of them are still the original, man- yeah, the original recipes that I personally came up with. Even though we've gone through development with chefs and professional chefs and product developers now, we've tweaked some of my recipes, but some of the flavors are still the ones that I had. And so I think we refine that in the restaurants because we could be, keep improving it because we didn't do big batches of it. But um, in we, we started getting um, emails from people asking if they could buy mochi from us. And well, I was like, I don't advertise anywhere. We only sell like packages to the restaurants. How do you know that we supply mochi to them? And someone had written, well, I climbed through the bins of Yo Sushi because I could see they were I'm taking these mochis out of these packs. And I thought, well, they obviously don't make them where they're coming from. And they're really expensive there. So can I buy them directly from you? And we kept getting emails like this. Not people going through bins, but the, but hearing that we were the people that made these mochis for the restaurants. And so at that time, we thought, you know, what we're probably ready for for the grocery stores, for the supermarkets, because we're starting to be better, like you know, more widely known. And that's when we emailed Whole Foods, and that's and um, you know they emailed us back two minutes later. Wow! Clearly said you had me at Mochi? And we were really nervous. <laughs> like you said, it's really hard to get into these stores. The buyers are so busy; they've got hundreds of brands sort of emailing them all the time. Um, but they, they, so we weren't expecting to hear back from them for six months or something. And they, they emailed us back straight away. And that's how we launched from restaurants into grocery stores. So we started in Whole Foods, then we, were, then we went to Ocado, Waitrose, Tesco's, and and
0: so on i think the people listening will be will be uh, impressed and also surprised to hear these stories because there's an assumption now that everything's direct to consumer instagram ad campaigns or community building and off we go which is but 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 it sounds like that this has gone differently and and ben presumably for you as well because seedlip was launched kind of pre instagram or at least selling food and drink on instagram right so what was your route to market after selfridges
1: yeah i was I was one of those people who was really against buying anything online, you know, like I'm not great with technology, but I, you know, I like seeing the real things. And now, uh, and so we didn't, you couldn't buy Seedlip from Seedlip's website. I was adamant for probably the first 18 months that that was just not going to happen. Um, and then, you know, started to build a much cleverer team than me. And then people, you know, were like, no, no, we, we kind of can make this work. Um, we it was really important for, you know, for a distilled non-alcoholic spirit that sounds weird and was new and unique, and no one had a clue what it was, how it was made, what to do with it. And no one knew who I was. So credibility by association and the advocacy um, and reputation of the people that thought it was good uh, was absolutely critical, and therefore, you know, people started to take a bit of notice when you're in Selfridges. Uh, people take a bit of notice when you're served in Michelin style restaurants or buy top cocktail bars or have top bartenders. Uh, you know, thinking that your product's great. So we we sort of created the yeah that real halo around the seed lip brand by just trying to find the best people um, and the most influential people within food and drink. Um, and, and to that decision, that very deliberate decision, Ben, I mean, it's an echo of
0: the quality of the product and those those years of you know research that you did into the art of distillation and so on. But you know, I remember seeing it and go, okay, a 25, 30 pound bottle of something that hasn't got alcohol in it. That's mm-hmm. surprising. Now, I was way down the chain in the supermarket probably when I saw it. But I remember having a drink with Andy, who I normally host Virgin Startup with, who's the, the CEO of Virgin Startup. Uh, my last drink, I had in two years ago and, and he bought Seedlip on a bar in Paddington. And he's like, I've always loved this brand. And I was like, the, the perception around pricing. So let's just go there for a moment. Like, yeah. did you go to pricing? Did you make the decision on pricing because that's what it cost? Did you do it because that's what you thought it was worth
1: in terms of its value to the customer? Um, it was triangulating a few different things, I guess. Uh, firstly, okay, it's quite expensive to make and it takes me mm-hmm. a long time to make and I, I need to use a lot of raw materials and a lot of real, brilliant, wonderful ingredients uh, to make these products. So there's a kind of bottom-up, okay, what does it cost me to make? I, I did want to have a business that was um, had, a, had a kind of fighting chance of some success. So uh, there was that element of kind of just making it commercially viable um, and being able to invest in the brand and the business going forward. There was another aspect of referencing from alcohol bottles and their pricing mm. and what was going on with the premiumization of spirits in the UK, certainly, and now all over the world. Um, and so kind of coming down from, uh, you know, sort of super premium bottle of spirits. Uh, and then there's the actual drink price. And if I kind of said to someone that, you know, a seedlip and tonic at home, all in is probably about £1.50. For a really good non-alcoholic option, I think that sounds pretty good. But when you're faced with a bottle that's twenty five quid plus of something that you've never heard of and you don't know what it's going to taste like, and it doesn't have alcohol in, yeah, that's been a, a really interesting barrier and, and challenge as we've as we've kind of scaled the business. But I am I'm I'm super proud that you know Seedlip is still twenty nine ninety nine in Selfridges five and a half years later whilst we've, you know, expanded um, quite considerably uh, across grocery and internationally.
0: Yeah, you should be proud. And also the fact that it's a great lesson, pricing, not necessarily high in your mind, but from a market's point of view, high up at the start, you can always discount from a high price point. You can't, it's much harder to go the other way. Um, Neil and Vivian, quickly on pricing, I'd love to hear your, how do you figure out your own pricing strategy? Vivian, Little Moons.
2: I think we tried to peg ourselves against um other sort of love premium ice cream brands back then it was Hagen-Dazs and Ben and Jerry's. Um so we just sort of put ourselves alongside that because I think it would be either you by little Moons or, or Ben and Jerry's. So that's kind of where we started.
0: Yeah, so looking at competition and that's worked yeah. okay. Yeah, Neil, what about yourself? Uh yeah, the the I think um it's interesting what Ben was saying, the
3: perception um is that you know, if it's not got alcohol, then it, it, it ought to be cheaper. Well, it's the same with us. People mm-hmm. would think, oh, well, if it doesn't have meat, then it ought to be cheaper. It takes probably four times as long to make our products than it does a meat burger. Um, so I think uh, there is that, that, we're getting there. Uh, we're getting there with pricing. And obviously the more people who are eating these products now, the better the pricing is for suppliers. Um, but it is, it is really a kind of production cost driven thing uh, for us. And then of course we try and match it as best we can to the market. Um, often our products aren't exactly directly comparable, so again, it's quite difficult to to do. And with our uh, our retail products, which are only a year old, uh, so our condiments, w- which are are in uh, Sel- uh, Selfridges, Whole Foods, Planet Organic, you know those same sorts of places, um, that's really a production thing. Our volumes at the moment, uh, you know, they're they're good, but they're not at a level where we can massively reduce the production costs. So um yeah we're we're in the same kind of situation as as everybody here probably has been and 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 is about to be it's it's a, it's a challenge but pricing is is definitely something we're trying to progressively get lower
0: it's great to hear and and i want to move swiftly on to like branding and that ties in nicely to impact and mission um and then if anyone's got questions on the, i can see a bunch going in they're on the q and a so you can upvote each other there we've got a few we've we're We're racing through this hour, so we're going to need every single minute of it because there's so much to discuss. As long as the energy is still good in the rest of this room here, I feel like it is from where I'm sitting. Um, But I wanted to ask about the branding. So, Ben and Vivian, you've always said, oh, I think we shared the same brand agency. For those that are starting out now, the food and drink game, it seems to attract talent when it comes to branding and storytelling. Do you think that's an accident? How did you figure it out? How did you choose a branding agency? Can you do it without one? um vivian what's been your journey with the brand
2: oh i didn't know you should ask ben that he's in that he was he comes from that market how did i do it we started off um with i guess a smaller market uh it's a branding agency that named our brand um and we did go to market with an original packaging and i guess that's one of the things is you don't have to wait till your product is perfect your packaging is We put it just so we launched it the first branding wasn't quite right and so we went to pearl fisher who did our second branding and um just refined it. I mean, we learned from it. We didn't have the product on the, on the front. It wasn't to scale. People didn't understand it. They didn't understand how much was mochi. So we had to put a picture of a product cut in half. And so okay. all of that sort of, because, you know, your, your front of pack is your, I think someone calls it packetizing. That's the only area where you can advertise your product on the shelf. So it's really got to tell the whole story about your product all on. Yeah, That's hard. Plus all the additional, you know, um, regulatory things you need to add on as well. So, um, so yeah, it was been a journey for us for sure. It wasn't just it wasn't just one go and it's perfect.
0: But presumably by having that first attempt yourself, that you got the lessons that, that when you did spend the money, you were able to like go, not this at least, yeah. and then get some guard. So what did you call it? Was it called something else?
2: No, it was always called Different
0: Me. Okay. You could it differently. I so you just reminded me of we so we worked with um Pippa Nut Pippa Murray in the early yeah. days. And if you're not yeah. in the UK, you probably wouldn't have heard of this amazing uh, premium nut butter brand, which has sort of taken over. Um, and uh, she was like crushing nuts into a jars in like the shed in the garden at Esca- the Escape the City house in Battersea, where I was working at the time after she won a competition and um, and then building a fan base online and so on. And her thing was like, I was like, she talked about the, the, the pactivizing and like the real estate. You've got such a minimal space with food and drink to like pack the whole story in. It's not like this big, people don't tend to go to the websites until they're buying the product. So, and she made this bold decision to put palm oil free like right next to the brand name and logo and i asked her about it and she said that captures the mission and like the the product in one in one phrase and so uh it's a bold decision but it paid off for her um and so so for you neil how did you figure out the branding of the Virgo company because it's so slick and like well done was it always that way Thank you. Um, we we put a lot of effort into it for sure. It wasn't always like it
3: is now, but um we were kind of lucky. We've never used a branding agency, so we've never spent um major money on branding or design or, or anything like that. So we, we were quite lucky. So one of Rachel well actually Rachel's best friend um he is from the fashion world, an ex colleague of hers, um, a wonderful artist, very, very talented. She's she is a fashion designer, graphic designer. So anything like that is her kind of uh, game. So in the beginning we had help from her um, and we quickly realized, you know, it, it sounds like a silly thing for a restaurant to have a graphic designer, but you don't realize just how much stuff there is always to design. You know, we're, we're doing menus, we're doing screens, we're doing POS information for customers every day, we're doing stickers, you know, you name it, we, we've got to design it pretty much every day. Um, So we very quickly realized that she was more than just Rachel's best friend. She was probably someone we needed to hire. Um, So we hired her quite early on. Uh, She's now our brand director um, and she's actually just hired someone to work with her as well. Um, So we do do invest, I suppose, in a way in brand and uh, in design and things like that. But it's not with an agency. It's all it's all in-house with us.
0: And, and And as Ben will probably uh, add in here like branding
1: is not just what the look, it looks like, right, Ben. It's, it's, it's everything pretty much. Yeah, it is. and I, I kind of I know I'm biased to this, right? but I cannot stress enough, and um, just the importance of investing in, uh, in your brand and its design, um, you know, branding has got a lot better, the quality, everybody can make something look nice now and there are designers all over the world that'll design you a logo for five pounds. You know, access to design uh, is inc- has never been easier, but the, kind of, yeah, the, the quality, there's a really big difference between a pretty pack and a memorable and meaningful brand. Yeah, and telling
0: the story that goes with it, which the three of you all don't. So Anna is asking here, how much of your budget is spent on branding, marketing versus product development? I mean, that must have shifted all the way through. But in your case, Ben, with Seedlip, like, what does that split look like?
1: Uh, well, I, I gave uh, some equity in the business um, to Pearl Fisher, who are our design agency. Uh, that was how I did it. And I managed to get uh, sort of some – I part-funded it and gave some equity away, such was, I guess, my belief in design. And then I brought design in-house for – Uh, for the last five years. So we work with the agency on the core assets, but then I uh, have a team of two designers in the U S three designers here in the UK. And we brought design in-house much like Neil was saying, menus, literature, you know, POS, there is so, so much social digital ads. um, That's a lot of work. And by having people in-house, you get full-time hundred percent focus, and it is way, way cheaper. And and
0: Tim, Emma, and uh, quite a few are all asking about when. So when you decide to move the, uh, this question for all of you, move from going like freelancers, outsource, DIY to like, I'm going for employment. Is it all just driven by the finance or is it is it some just gut instinct?
1: Vivian, how gut do you go? Sorry, in, ben, go ahead. Yeah, it's a bit of gut instinct on need. You know, having a couple of freelancers that you might be working with, I, I kind of feel like, there's a bit of intuition stacked up with how we house performance and how the numbers coupled with investment and kind of growth plans. Um, and, and just kind of maybe taking the small risk to invest ahead in somebody and bring them in uh, so that you can kind of use that as part of fueling the growth.
0: Yeah. Same for you, Neil and Vivian.
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we were very focused on the brand very early on, um, even though we were doing market stores and, pop-ups we didn't look like your average market stall and pop up so beginning although the money is you know tiny now looking back but we we probably spent more than was was needed on on branding early on um but probably not in the same way as ben but then as we've moved on you know we're still spending a lot of money we're you know we're employing a fairly senior person we've just employed a second full-time person so we are spending you know, a decent chunk of money every year on branding, but um, it's not quite in the same way, but, but yeah, I think it's essential. I think if you're going to, if you're going to start anything now, it's super competitive. There isn't, there isn't a category that isn't starting to get congested. So I think um, you really do have to, and it's exactly what Ben said. It's not just making the package look pretty. It's far more than that. It's telling a story and making sure that your brand is memorable in three seconds on a shelf
0: yeah just like the examples you all gave us at the start of the evening vivian branding product dev equal i
2: i'm unlike, unlike ben I, I didn't really come i didn't understand branding as a language i didn't it just wasn't you know in in my vernacular from where i've come from in my past career so i actually went through quite a few design agencies it was expensive and and, and it was you know it was time time consuming but um We finally learned how to write a really good brief, basically. And Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really key to get it all in the brief. And I think we briefed agencies incorrectly. And that's why we didn't get the outcome that we wanted to. Um, but also you were just saying something about I think branding is really important, but it, oh, it's equally important to have a really good product there. And I feel like everyone's really spent time making sure that their vegan products are great and see that it's super delicious, because even if you brand something really well, if it's not great, I don't know if it will fly. So it really is quite important to get both right, I think.
0: Well, and food and drink is the ultimate yeah. trust you are putting in your body. It's word of mouth, right? It's, it's yeah. everything. So yeah, you've got, you got to nail the product. Now, listen, we're, we're almost out of time. So what I thought I'd do is come in with a massive question with three minutes to go just to hit, hit hard. But this is if we zoom out a little bit and, and we're, the world is changing so fast, not just because of the pandemic, uh, but for lots of other reasons and food and the future of food. Uh, whether you're looking at like uh, moving away from meat or dairy or thinking about your relationship with alcohol or thinking about how you celebrate your life in new ways and different ways with like desserts and so on. Like what is the purpose of food and startup drink now? Like, is it, is it more, does it matter more today than it did when you, some of you started out like a decade ago and can, you know, what part can the startup movement play in like fixing some of the big problems in the food and drink industry, whether it's food, uh, sorry, whether it's, it's social or environmental, where where I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as we wrap this conversation up. Whoever wants to be brave and jump in first, go for it.
1: I'd just say that uh, you know we need like this new, or not so new, but I guess the recent wave of people doing business in a different way and and for different reasons. Um, beyond just profit uh, is amazing to see. And it definitely feels like there's a great groundswell of that happening. But ultimately for it to really cut through and have an impact, a lot of these businesses have got to get big, right? It's not going to work if there are a million tiny businesses um, with yeah, with I guess a bigger impact and a bigger business comes more responsibility and more opportunity for influence. And that's certainly a that's certainly why I I want Seedlip to be as big as it can, because I believe that then it can have more of a good positive impact. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting a really big business. You know, it's not about the money, uh, but it is the way that brands like patagonia etc can have a really meaningful influence in our lives
0: yeah we never needed it more and and uh i know lots of people even through our little community at rebel book club where we used to serve cocktails all the time and the mocktail demand has gone through the roof uh so you know we we've served plenty of seed lip over the last few years and and people Mm -hmm. love it uh vivian what's your perspective on the purpose of food and drink
2: I think I, I completely agree with Ben and I think something that I feel very lucky about is that in a, in a, in a world where I feel quite out of control right now, I, I can control how I run my business and how I treat my staff. And, you know, during this period of uncertainty to make sure that you say to everyone, you know, this, it's going to be fine. What sort of things like, you know, just treat people as human beings, which is mm-hmm. I, I've come from an industry that can be a little bit tough like in, in banking and stuff. So I really wanted to make sure that my team felt cared for and and you do all this sort of extra go the extra mile for your team to make sure and you know one of the things is we wanted to give everyone um health care in all our factory workers and things which i think you know because i care very much about health but it wasn't actually something that they wanted but we've we've, we've done other things that they've wanted and so it's been a learning curve but yes it's definitely something that i feel really proud that i'm able to make a real change in people's lives um yeah
0: fantastic thank you neil
3: yeah, I mean, uh, both both excellent. I would agree with with both. Um, but I think for me, food and drink is is everything. You know, it's it's emotion and it's it connects people. And you know, look what's happening now. People are allowed to go outside, and what do they want to do? They want to go to a pub. They want to go to a restaurant. It's 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 something that that connects us all, um, and it's something that I think will continue to educate us all. Sadly, we've had. Well, I suppose, sadly, it's, it's easy to say that now, but at the time it was just growing. So we've, we've got a bit of a broken system. You know, we've got a broken food system in general. And I think um, events, sadly, like the last 18 months have really kind of brought that to the surface. Um, and I think there's a, just a lot more awareness now. Food is, is a great driver of, of conversation um and food is a great kind of thing to enlighten people and to 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 spark new ideas and to to move things in different directions so yeah i think food and drink is immensely important for sure
0: and i i love how you know you're building a vegan company without basically telling people we all have to become vegan i think that's a you know a non-alcoholic company it, it, it's it's like this this way of like just build something that's awesome tell a great yeah. story And food is all about celebration and community. So I feel like with with leaders and creators like yourselves, and there are many, many others, um, it it feels like a renaissance of good food and drink at the moment. Um, And it's not just the products themselves. It's the way, it's the events around them and the way we're doing dining in different ways and community in different ways. And, you know, all these pop-up parks and markets and so on. It's a really exciting time. um, And it's a great way to educate and inspire. So a big thank you to to the three of you for starting because you did and you went through those early years of resilience so that was great to hear about um, and and sort of detailed like teaching yourself a whole new world and getting these things out into the world so thank you for doing that for all of us who've enjoyed your your products um, and also for tonight for giving us your time Vivian, Neil and Ben uh, thanks very much for being part of Virgin Startup tonight it's been great to have you with us thank Thanks. you yes yeah. so we are now going to switch everybody to sessions uh, so we're going to in a few seconds click down to sessions um, and i will be in one room you can come and chat and share your reflections and what you thought about the conversations with the conversation we just had good insights, uh, valuable tools, bits of inspiration. And you can also share what you're working on with others and things that you need help with. Um, so yeah, come and say hello to me. And then there's another room where some of the Virgin Start crew are going to be. Um, I know Io and Lucas and Io is working on a food and drink startup on the side. Um, so go and have a chat with them. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much for being with us. Um, and uh, we'll see you in sessions. I'll come back up here in about 45 minutes to wrap up. The highlights of the evening. See you in the sessions. You've been listening to a Virgin Startup podcast. Virgin Startup are a not-for-profit organization set up to help founders start up and thrive. Don't be shy, let us know what you thought by leaving a review whenever you listen to your podcast, and to find more about how we can help you start and scale your business, head over to virginstartup.org. Thanks to our friends at Virgin Money, we're able to make our meetups free to attend, providing thousands of early stage founders with the support they need to start and scale businesses in the UK. Virgin Money are here to disrupt the status quo. They want everyone to have a much happier relationship with money. Through their brilliant colleagues, inspiring spaces and digital solutions, they are doing everything they can to offer a life more Virgin. They provide a full range of banking products and services to help founders at every stage of their business journey. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and you'll join us next time for more founder stories.